You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today, we welcome the finance and climate justice expertise of Jennifer McFarland. Jennifer has three decades of experience as a board member, a strategic CFO at both public and venture-backed companies, as well as an international investment banker. Jennifer is a well-respected member of the Tonic community, where many members often seek her knowledge in navigating clean energy and sustainability initiatives. Jennifer takes us back to the early days of being deeply entrenched in her work in the oil and gas industry. She spent many years in the legacy industries long before sustainability or impact investing was even a thing. But it was exactly these experiences in these legacy industries that led to her shifting towards a blended finance perspective that brings values into the picture. She talks about her journey through the climate crisis, starting in mitigation, then evolving towards sequestration to adaptation to climate justice, recognizing that the West has not yet adjusted for the responsibility of climate change in the global South. This episode is an opportunity to drop in to hear Jennifer share her wealth of knowledge. Enjoy. Hi, welcome, Jennifer. Um, Delighted to be here, Gino, with you. I've listened to some of your other podcasts, and you just have an amazing selection of interviews, and uh, so I'm honored to be on here. Uh, Well, very honored to have you. In particular, I think you are one of the few impact folks that actually come from that classic corporate culture and then find their ways into uh, the impact space and really have carved out a nice niche for yourself. And I want to really explore this idea of going from the big corporate machine per se and you trying to do it with intentionality or maybe there was probably an aha moment you realized like, uh, the only way for me to really pursue the values aspect of both my life and in business is perhaps I need to move beyond and transition out of this particular structure. But before we get there, take us back to that kind of moment and where you were in the corporate sphere and where it dawned on you. It's like, hmm, I'm not going to be able to realize this whole values thing unless I really establish a new context for myself. There was probably two components to it. And I'll say My career post-business school went straight to Wall Street, to Solomon Brothers, for those who know about Solomon Brothers. Classic Wall Street firm. Yes, of course. Classic Wall Street firm. And I was in investment banking. I had wanted to do this for some time, and I was excited to be in New York. I felt that it would be a great grounding for a career. I wasn't sure what exactly the career would be, although it would be probably in finance. And I thought it would enable me to travel the world. So I thought that was pretty good too. So I was very excited to be there, not necessarily seeing it as my end spot either. And I was at Solomon for five years. And I just you kept on getting signals that sort of said, and I'll put this perhaps more in the M&A department, where you've got investment bankers selling an idea that you know that the only thing they're thinking about is what fee can they get? And there is sort of less integrity for the client. And then even on the public offerings, it was, okay, can we get this company out the door without something terribly going wrong within six months? 
that was it. It's all like, this is a good investment to the long term. This, we believe in the manager is like, okay, can we cover our ass by not having something go wrong in the, in the six months? So that just, I have to probably say partway through the five years, I recognize this is definitely going to be a career learning experience versus a career ending experience. But I wasn't thinking, recognizing the values of misalignment. I wasn't sort of thinking of going into to impact or anything like that at that point in time. I will say after Solomon Brothers, I went and did privatization in emerging markets, basically in Eastern Europe. And that was one step where I you're much closer to people and the impact, the privatization and how much it was changing people's lives, upending them completely. So more the human component to the world and the impact of the world changing on humans sort of was part of that whole experience. So I think that sort of opened the perspective of just looking things in a, in a broader context for me. I went back to New York as my husband-to-be was in New York and spending all my time in Eastern Europe wasn't that constructive. So I did investment banking for a couple more years in a small boutique. This next step was the one that really turned it. And the next step was something I was also excited about, which was to join a company in Australia as CFO that was going through a large growth period that was transforming oil shale into oil. I was aware that it was greenhouse gas intensive. I aware that wasn't necessarily good. I didn't know necessarily how bad it was. And I'll just say that I was there in Australia for five years. That was my agreement with my husband. Five years in Australia is good. And it was just transformative because there was a whole bunch of environmental and stakeholder issues associated with this new technology. And I ended up being really engaged in that. So let me just give you is not only was the most greenhouse gas intensive source of energy, we looked at how we might offset that by forestry. We figured out we'd have to reforest all of Australia just to cover our own greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> so he told you, this is not a solution. <laughs> so I actually got well enough. So I was speaking about reforestation on panels back in 2000. We produced dioxins. We were had a nice view of the Great Barrier Reef. We were downwind of a community of 100 people that was in a swing county in a state that was very environmentally focused. We were the number one target of Greenpeace. We were backed into a situation where I ended up deciding that we needed to take a holistic sustainability strategy. We need to sort of at least do the best job on the lipstick that we could. So we did greenhouse gas counting. We had a third party reviewed. We went and interviewed a lot of stakeholders, including nonprofits like World Wildlife Fund. I did not meet with Greenpeace, but <laughs> everybody bought Greenpeace and produced a sustainability strategy. And I found that I was really far more excited about that than the business. So one was how misaligned the business was, but the other part was that this area of climate and clean energy was actually something that would be a business that was more values aligned. So part of what a big aha and exciting part was, my gosh, there is actually a business that can be more aligned with 
feeling of doing good as against doing whatever you can, regardless of the consequences. So I think that was really that experience in Australia for five years. There were a lot, there's a lot of issues to deal with, but I ended up sort of being, to some extent, energized a little that and excited that that actually there was a, a career that I'd feel good about. So after five years, I went back to the States and the early noughts. I actually ended up taking a role as CEO of a nonprofit focused on women entrepreneurs and then have had a career in climate. What happened inside the halls within these companies when you proposed this in terms of when you were in Australia? Because I'm guessing you may have maybe had an appetite to continue if like you were fully embraced. But I know you had this five-year pledge, but was there also realization that you're only going to get so far with this vision within this company? It was the five-year component as well as we were building a $200 million first-of-a-kind plant. And for anybody who's vaguely familiar, first-of-a-kind plants never go anything according to plan. And we had partners leave us because of the greenhouse gas emissions. So we were struggling in that area in terms of attracting partnerships that would help continue the project. So it was going through a difficult period anyway, but regardless of that, it was really from a personal point of view, sort of the right thing to go back to the States. So in the end, the sustainability strategy wasn't necessary. The technology took care of it. Where were you at in your family life at this particular period of time? I see, I know you have two girls and they're in their 20s, but just put us into some context of where your family was and you trying to raise your family during all this. So I had child number one in New York in 97, just before heading down to Australia, and I had child number two in Australia. I'll have to say my choices of working in children probably were things that I was very comfortable with. I wouldn't put them as norms. I, everybody makes their own choice. But I was working pretty hard with, and had lots of extra help to be able to manage everything. Yeah, that's not easy. I actually just went, my young boy's four and a half, so I totally know how much of a commitment is, especially during those early years. Do you circle back with your kids at all on particular parts and phases? And also just curious, is there any type of awareness or of the opportunity cost of kind of choosing career versus more presence. And it's not to say you weren't present, but I'm just getting at this idea when like we reflect back on times, we sometimes go, gosh, you know what? I wish when this would have arisen that I would have done X or said X. Let's just say my kids so far turned out quite well. My premonition at the beginning was it might be better if I was not around. I was more suited to business. I wasn't sure I'd be how good I was with young kids, but they've turned out all right. I do look at photographs in an older age, sort of in the from the eight to the thirteen, fourteen year old, and that's where I sort of feel I wish I could grab back those days and those times and just sort of really remember those and savor them. I'll just say, say, I'll give my kids all the credit for turning out well. So yes, I have perhaps less angst than others might have, but I respect everybody is different in what the right thing works for them. I remember my father one time, we were at the dinner table a long time ago, and somebody at the dinner table made some comment about somebody else's parenting style, and he stopped them and goes, you know, just remember, 
there's a thousand ways to parental heaven. And so just because it doesn't make sense to you and you can't get to heaven that way, it may make sense to that unit and that family. Is this a function in terms of your deep interest in business? Is there something in particular with your parents? I mean, were your parents very entrepreneurial and driven like you, or or is this a counter response to parents who weren't driven? My father was very driven. He was an entrepreneur. I probably got some of that from him. I would say he was probably not values driven. So this would be <laughs> a foreign thing to him. Some of this evolved sort of a little bit more after he died about 15 years ago. So it's become stronger. But basically, I'd say that would be completely unaligned with him. He just worked the whole time. That was what he felt comfortable with. Part of it is I was comfortable working. I enjoyed it. I just also wasn't sure about me as a mother. (laughs) And I think one thing that I am happy with looking back in the picture is that when I was back in the States doing this nonprofit, I did a lot of presentations and events and so forth. And my kids would come and see me. And I'd have board meetings back at home. And I think having that visibility and just seeing that I felt was good. I enjoyed that. And they remember it. They remember it with perhaps a slightly different perspective than I would gasp. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> They're like, oh, another presentation, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, when you were going through this down in Australia, the word climate change, if it did exist, it was just amongst super geeks and super scientists. But it hadn't been, I'm assuming by at that point, kind of a public term, an imperative that institutions were starting to look at, corporations, people with their own personal choices, whether consumptions or savings. At what point did you kind of learn that it's like, yeah, I was, I'm in energy. I was in energy, but this is really about climate. And this is where I'm going to go with my background in energy? So I'll just say, although it wasn't visible, in Australia at this point in time, there was no greenhouse gas regulations whatsoever. However, you knew that the regulators at the state level and the federal level, this was like number one in their mind, and that they had every bit of latitude to make any final decision they wanted, regardless of any specific regulation, and that the politicians were concerned about what the image this would create. And we had the number one target of Greenpeace. So we that we were actually part of 60 Minutes in Australia because of this. We had a 30-year injunction against Greenpeace for coming out. I mean, so we had an off-taker of our oil, and they walked because of Greenpeace. So I'll just, when we had shareholders around the world, and we go to Europe, and it was, we're concerned about your greenhouse gases. And that's back in 2000. So I'll say the greenhouse gas component was very front of mind or became very front of mind very strongly once I joined the company full time and understood it more. And I think it was, it wouldn't sort of know, I mean, solar back then didn't really sort of exist. I just knew it was going to be something that was cleanish. It could be a process. It could be biofuels. In fact, I wasn't CFO of a biofuels company. But it was just something that was going to be positive in terms of lower greenhouse gas emissions, still meeting energy needs. You mentioned you were a CEO of a nonprofit. And now, you know, you and I connected through the global network called Tonic, 
and we're surrounded by a small consortium of similar thinking climate investors. What's the intersection between your nonprofit experience, your analysis of climate and business from a profit perspective, and who's serving who or what works and what doesn't work? Because I know you have some really good insights. I've, I've heard you talk about at least a half a dozen times in different contexts. And each time I feel like I learned something just based on kind of your nuanced background of being so involved, so deep. And I can tell you also go home and start keep thinking about this stuff. And you will probably keep reading until you feel like you have it calcified to some extent. So just curious on how this all kind of plays out for you. Where we've come in the U.S. in terms of momentum on clean energy was something that wasn't even within my perspective as being possible back when I moved into solar in 2007. I say that because the only way you scale at this level is if it makes economic sense. So it has to. And the consumer is only going to change behavior if it's a good, fun change of behavior or it's required. You're not going to get away with anything else. So the economics are making the economics work is critical. So two things. One is in Australia, one thing I learned was that if you're going to try and build a new industry, which is what we were doing in Australia with the oil shale, is that the power of the incumbents and the legacy and the value of the infrastructure that's been built in the oil and gas industry over 100 years, it is insurmountable without material government involvement. Full stop. So <laughs> the government has to be involved to make it work from an economics and a power perspective. In terms of the, sort of the non-profits, what I've come to appreciate is there's, there's a lot of things that just fall through the cracks in terms of government responsibility, business, even if business is best behavior. Just things aren't going to be fully addressed. So I believe strongly in the ongoing need for a strong nonprofit sector. So can you give us some examples of things that you're working on that are falling through the cracks in a nonprofit context, and then also things that you're working on in a profit context that are part of the scaling solution that's being supplemented and augmented through material uh, government support? Two questions. I'll start with one. You can ask the second one later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So I've got involved in climate justice in the last year in a very specific sense of climate justice within the Bay Area. And I'm in an area where there's not far from the bay, there's a couple of counties or little towns that are right going to be right in the front of sea level rise. And which towns are those? East Palo Alto, parts of Redwood City, parts of Menlo Park. Gotcha. For those who live in the Bay Area. South Bay, yeah. Yeah, the South Bay. They also have about one fifth of the tree coverage. They're also closer to highways, and so the asthma is high. They are the poor parts of larger towns or poor towns themselves and have difficulty in getting their voice and their priorities met. They don't have the time capacity. In their community doesn't have the time capacity. They're worried about whether they can pay rent. So there's things like it's always going to fall through the cracks. And so 
thankfully, there's momentum towards greater collaboration because I think the more that these smaller organizations, community-based organizations band together with similar issues, then their voice is large enough to be heard and powerful enough to be taken into account. So that's falling, one example of falling. There's lots of examples of falling through the cracks. There's always minorities or small exceptions or use cases or whatever that just aren't factored in or just don't fit in with the assumptions on any regulation or anything like that. The other thing of impact that I'm involved in, which is impact to help scale. And this is more the blended finance structure. So I'm on the board, on the loan committee of something called MCE Social Capital, which has a $60 million fund that provides loans to small and growing businesses and microfinance in emerging markets. It is funded through philanthropy and under market priced loans and a ton of people expertise for which no dollar is charged. But they're the, often the first institutional investor in. And so they catalyze bringing others in afterwards to a small and growing business. So that I think is a step where the nonprofit becomes a step towards scaling institutionally. And I think that's tremendous. So I greatly enjoy that role and what they do. On that project dealing with East Palo Alto and Menlo Park and Redwood City that you were referring to in the South Bay, what's your role and how are you helping out in that capacity? So I belong to something called SV2 Silicon Valley Social Ventures, which is a call it I'm a partner and partners pull their philanthropic dollars together to re-grant out. And I'll just say huge thanks to SV2 because basically I asked to lead to, to do something for the first time at the beginning of the year. So I co-organized with some others and with some help and financial support from SV2, a half-day event in this area with about 20 donors and five nonprofit organizations to sort of increase the visibility of these organizations in the film of climate justice. Then SV2 ended up deciding to do a climate justice grant round. And so we're just about to make decisions later on this week about two nonprofits receiving a hundred total of $160,000, which I'm excited about. So that's odd to thank SV2 for the flexibility of letting me do something that I was really excited about. And that second part of the question was, what are you involved in that's already much more on the commercial side that's currently scaling? The best example of this, I'll say, is part of my prior CFO career when I was CFO of a company called Next Tracker. And Next Tracker manufactures what's called a solar tracker, and solar trackers hold the panels on a ground mount system for ground mounted projects, and they track the sun in one dimension. It is the largest solar tracking company in the world outside of China. It scaled to there with being the largest within about three years. And the returns, they managed to get the cost of the tracker down so that it was improved the economics of solar. So now like 80% of projects on ground mount large projects use solar tracking. Solar tracker is against being fixed. The solar tracker, because it helps them with their original design in terms of where they put the panels, or do the panels actually move in real time? Sorry, the panels move in real time relative to the sun. There's other innuendos that you can do about maximizing, but essentially, yes, it tracks the sun, and so you can increase production by about 20%. 
And the question is, okay, so that's great. And the design of the trackers enabled to be done cost-effectively. Previously, the design was inefficient. Yeah, I was going to say, that must be quite the infrastructure to have a bunch of moving panels. So (laughs) how many feet does a solar panel move in a typical day if it's on one of these solar trackers? You're going to die really quickly beyond my level of expertise. And I was just going to ask you a funny question about your expertise, but I'm going to save it. Now, I'm curious about, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wow, a solar panel, it moves. Okay, that makes sense. Now, how much does it actually move during a given day? Yeah, well, so maybe from 40 degrees from one side to 40 degrees to the other side. Okay. I mean, it can be pretty standing, I guess, maybe even more than that. The other advantage is actually if you've got a really bad wind, you can put them in parallel so they manage to get through. And that's been a huge benefit in itself. So earlier I made a reference to every time I've heard you talk, I was like, okay, Jennifer does a lot of processing of information and a lot of metabolizing and chews on things and then probably follows up with things just to verify. And I mean, I think you here's the assumption I'm making. Tell me if I'm like, Chino, you're so far out in right field, it's just crazy. But I feel like you're very probably diligent with how information comes into your life and how you process it and how you speak to it. Give us a little color on what you go through to, one, decide what to get involved in, and then to... Well, I do a lot of reading. So I have done some reading and, and listening in the area of probably climate change fairly broadly. And I'll say my trajectory has evolved. So I was very much focused on mitigation, i.e. sort of technologies that reduce greenhouse gas emissions for about 10 years. Then when I left my last CFO position, I said, we actually really need to do sequestration. And so thinking about that five years ago, found a company, joined a board in sequestration. Because just sort of said, despite the fact it's regarded as possibly sort of an excuse, there's no choice. Then realizing, so it's just it's just keeping. There's so much is changing in this area. Part of it's keeping up. So the things that I'm reading about is so recognizing. Okay, we're not going to get there. The amount of infrastructure we have to build is humongous to be able to do this transition in a period of time. Adaptation. And once you think about adaptation, you just think about it's just all to do with justice. That's it. So that's partly why I got in justice. And right now, I'm starting to move towards thinking about the importance of recycling. I'm actually on the board of recycling an EV battery company. But it's grown since then. So I've joined the board. I've learned more about it. And I've got more excited and appreciate the importance of recycling because I come from at least some lithium, lithium batteries. I came from being in mining. Mining is like, oil and gas can look nice compared to mining, what you do. You do not want to create a habit of mining. So recycling, that has to be core to any mineral usage in clean energy. I guess I didn't talk to you about the process. I just tend to like to think what's new. I think I'm a shiny shiny something or other person. (laughs) So I always like to think what's new, and I've got this horrible curiosity. So for those who don't know, describe the sequence of ways of viewing climate from mitigation to sequestration. A lot of people don't even know what sequestration is. And then this movement 
toward acknowledging this notion of adaptation. And then lastly, you're making a connection, I think I heard you right, between adaptation and justice. And so if you can kind of help us follow that sequence of thought pattern. So the mitigation is all about finding ways to produce energy and clean energy, or that is not as less greenhouse gas intensive, so you get more energy with less greenhouse gases. And the big thing has evolved to as much electricity as possible because we know we can get that pretty well far to being clean. So that's all about sort of the mitigation. Stop doing the bad stuff. Find ways to avoid more greenhouse gas emissions. The sequestration says, oops, there's some stuff that's still going to get there. And by the way, that's going to be unavoidable. And we're going to have to take it out of the air. Or in the case of technology I'm involved in, it's taking carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas, out of what's called a flue gas, which is the smokestack of industrial facilities. And some of them is always going to produce greenhouse gas emissions or carbon dioxide. So you have to deal with removing those. So it's essential. In our case, the technology we use, the idea is we actually create a product as against stuff the greenhouse gas in the ground, which is another choice. Then the adaptation is really saying, oops, the world is going to get hotter. It's already getting hotter. We get reminded in the East Coast and the West Coast, at least in the Bay Area, pretty well, (laughs) and as well as some areas around the United States. And we haven't even felt the full impact of the climate, of the emissions we've already put into the air. It's going to happen over. So it's like we're on a trajectory that we can't stop. and. So there is going to be having to change sea level. People are going to have to move forward sea level rise. People have to move to avoid wildfires, to basically have enough of a healthy air environment. And that's sort of, okay, What do you? how do you adapt with the least degree of disruption? And those who are least able to adapt are often those that have the least resources. To some extent, they're also in the areas that are more likely to have adaptation issues as well. So they're like, they're called frontline communities. They're the ones that get the biggest brunt. They're the ones that are most disadvantaged. And unless we really bend over, really work towards creating equity in this, it's going to be very unbalanced. And I'll say not only within the United States, but also outside the United States, which is called the global south. When you look at these models of what's likely to come, and you're speaking of these migration patterns, essentially, these soon-to-be large-scale migration patterns from places that are being impacted by climate change, not just temporarily, but it becomes clear that this is just a new world for these particular parts of, of Earth and where, where people have congregated, how do you work through just kind of the inevitable moment of despair when you realize like, shit, this isn't just 10,000 people moving. This could be potentially hundreds of millions of people moving, which inevitably you're thinking leads to all kinds of intense friction between nation states, internal strife. Take us to where your heart and just your personal existence goes sometimes while taking this on. And then in the meantime, how do you maintain a sense of pragmatism and hope, kind of holding on to these facts. 
So what comes into my feeling is, first of all, I've done some work in emerging markets through actually a nonprofit called Women's World Banking, as well as in my career as a CFO. So I have, I guess, sort of awareness or respect for emerging markets. And I'll just say the West has done a horrible job being a colonial creature. We haven't even addressed that fully. And that climate change is even worse because we put all the emissions in and the global South is going to have the biggest consequences as a result. So I feel as if we need to reorient completely and just say we can't let this level of inequity and unfairness continue because the consequence to the world balance and, as you said, sort of the implications for states is just going to be too dire. And so I tend to think we ourselves in the countries have more than enough resources to have a really good life and that the priority needs to orient towards the reckoning for emerging markets. Where did the sense of justice emerge for you? Has this been something you've always had or more middle to late of life that you had? And I mean, why the focus on fairness? Because easily, I mean, you probably have a rather comfortable life in the South Bay. You will not be impacted as directly as the very people that you're talking about. You can kind of move from one climate controlled situation to another, and you can always flee the fire when a fire comes to the Bay Area. You can take off for a month. You can, so you have a lot of access to a lot of other options. But where does that feeling of injustice or like mercy come into play for you and why? I'm not sure I really know. All I can say is I was very aware that I grew up in a life that ranged from privileged to overly privileged. <laughs> And that was always top of mind. Maybe that's part of Australia where there's a a sense of the tall poppy syndrome, which is you don't want to stick out too much from everybody else. So being that privileged is not something you want. You sort of self-consciousness about it. And then I think my time in emerging markets, one was in Thailand in 87 and then in Eastern Europe in the 90s, just recognizing that so much of the world has a much more challenging life for no reasons other than they were born in that circumstance. I wouldn't know what to do if I was born in that life. <laughs> i just leave it at that. It was the exposure and the empathy, perhaps. It's really been more internationally. It's only in the last two or three years I've focused on this within the Bay Area. When you refer to the Global South, I'm guessing you're referring to South America Africa, Australia? Am I missing anything in terms of when you're referencing the global South will be impacted disproportionately? Is that right? Thanks. Yes. It is a generic term that's being really used for sort of emerging markets. Australia does not fit in the global South, despite the fact it's down there. It's way down there. (laughs) It's way down there. We're pretty privileged down there, but you would add in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, India, essentially the emerging markets. And the simplistic word has been global south, but it's not geographically completely correct. Any last words or thoughts that come up for you as we've discussed these different kind of tangents between your upbringing, 
through the corporate world into the energy space and inevitably converting that and transitioning into nonprofit and profit work in the climate space. And then also particularly how this all intersects with justice. So we've touched on a lot of points and sometimes some things are left unexpressed. So I just want to give you last word. Thanks. And one thing we haven't touched on that's been was probably the first theme that surfaced in my consciousness was discrimination against women. And that would have been the first thing. So the reason I bring that up is because there's a whole thread throughout my career, my experience related to women discrimination. And being a part of that brings in itself a sort of empathy because you know you're not the top dog and you know you've had to fight and the consequence of it. I'll also say being in Australia originally is like you recognize you're a small country in a larger world. So what the elephant of the United States does will have an impact on Australia that the United States won't care about, won't be aware of. So I think it's this appreciation that there's a lot more complexity of consequences out there and empathy. That's a beautiful wrap up. And Jennifer, if somebody wanted to engage you further, learn a little bit more about your values and the work you're doing in the world, where's the best place they can find you? Probably the best is actually with LinkedIn. And basically, I have a LinkedIn with just my name attached to it. I don't have any numbers. So it's LinkedIn slash Jennifer McFarlane. Yeah, we'll be sure to put that in the show notes along with a, a lot of other fun stuff that you brought up. Thanks so much, Jennifer, for sharing your story. It's a very rich story, and I believe it's going to be very inspiring for those people who are traveling similar paths for sure. And, you know, thanks very much for your questions. And as you said, this dialogue goes in directions you don't anticipate. It was a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.